I want to sell my life story to Ted Turner because it's unbelievable. The opposite of what people think. The brains of people are more interesting than the looks, I think. That was Hedy Lamarr, the Hollywood star whose name became synonymous with beauty in the 30s and 40s. Snow White and Catwoman were both based on her iconic look. But behind the scenes, Hetty was an inventor with a knack for science, who patented a covert communication system intended to help the United States defeat the Nazis in World War II. Her concepts became fundamental to the creation of secure Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth technologies. But Hetty never saw a dime for her work. I'm Michael Cantor, executive producer of American Masters, and we're very excited to present a special live American Masters podcast episode here at the Whitby Hotel in New York. I'd like to welcome to the stage tonight's panel, Alexandra Dean, the director of Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story, is here tonight. She's an Emmy award-winning journalist and producer. She's produced news magazine documentaries for PBS before working on Bloomberg Television on the series Innovators, Adventures, and Pursuits. She's also a founding partner at Reframe Pictures. Susan Sarandon is executive producer of Bombshell. She's internationally known as an Academy Award-winning actor who's made a career of choosing diverse and challenging projects. Susan's produced documentaries, feature films, and episodic television, and she's a founding partner of Reframed Pictures. Emina Solyanin is a professor at Rutgers University, where she works on large-scale data storage and computing. She's a distinguished lecturer, an IEEE fellow, the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity, and currently serves as the vice president for that society. Thank you all for joining us. (laughs) Alex, how did you discover Hedy Lamarr, and why did you want to tell her story? Well, I've been doing this series for two years on inventors. It had been this great opportunity to kind of travel the country and talk to a lot of incredible young people who had a vision for what world they wanted to create tomorrow. And I saw many of the the projects that we profiled become things in the world that had a huge amount of attention and interest. But those things that were designed by the young women that I became friends with who were inventors were often not funded. And I started to worry that there was a sense in our culture somehow that only one kind of person was worth funding if they came up with a brilliant idea. And that really haunted me. And um, we were starting Reframe Pictures um, several years ago now. And I really wanted to start with a film that spoke to me, that spoke to some conversation that I've been having in my own head. And our development producer at the time, Catherine Drew, had this book, Hetty's Folly, that she'd been sitting on for several years thinking this would be an amazing film. And she gave me the book by Richard Rhodes. And I read it and I thought, that's exactly the person I've been wondering if she existed, if if this kind of figure existed who, for some reason, we'd erased from the narrative, we hadn't taken seriously, who had invented part of our world. So it seemed like a really natural fit. And Susan, as executive producer of the film, what inspired you most about the story? You know, we're told as women that you can be pretty or you can be smart. And 
the thing that tripped Teddy up was that people didn't want to accept that she could be that smart because she was so beautiful. She was, she was a victim of her own unbelievable beauty. Couple that with what Hollywood does to women, especially more at that time, threw her out when she was 40 and she fought so hard to try to be relevant and to raise a family. And it was just an interesting story of how a, a woman that was that smart could fall victim to exactly what she didn't want to have happen, which was to be judged by the way she looked and to ruin the way she looked because she felt that kind of pressure. And so it had, uh, you know, it was pretty juicy and, uh, and at the same time relevant. You know, I think it's really fun to watch all those old bits and pieces of film. It was shot so beautifully and, and uh, at a time that we don't talk about that much anymore. So I knew that that would be fun. And meanwhile, you can kind of slip in all the relevance while you're being entertained. And I'm proud of the, what Alex did and how it turned out. And because and, I think it is amusing, but at the same time, it's sad. And, uh, you know, it makes you wonder. And I'm glad that girls now, young women now, um, are, uh, you know, when my daughter was growing up, she's 33 now my eldest, and, you know, everyone was reading the Ophelia tragedy book, yeah. you know, about how girls didn't raise their hands anymore in, in, in class once they turned 11 and, you know, weren't taken seriously in math and weren't encouraged to do uh, science. And I think little by little, people are at least having this conversation and, and funding some of the um, projects to encourage girls to code and to, you know, reward them. And you're, because of the internet, as a young woman, you can see examples of women that are, whether it's a movie like Hidden Figures or, you know, this documentary, you have now women that you can look up to that you know have done this. In this excerpt from Bombshell, Hedy Lamar's son Anthony Loder and historian Guy Livingston explain one of Hedy's most important moments of inspiration during a critical point of World War II. So in this article, Hetty says, I got the idea for my invention when I tried to think of some way to even the balance for the British. A radio-controlled torpedo, I thought, would do it. A torpedo launched on a given trajectory might need to be changed, redirected. You want, ideally, your launching boat to communicate with the torpedo. The problem is you can't control radio communications. They're not secure. Your enemy, if they're smart, finds the frequency with which you're talking to the torpedo and jams it. Jamming. The Germans fill the air with radio interference. She came up with the idea of a secret way of guiding that torpedo to the target that couldn't be interrupted, that couldn't be jammed, that couldn't be messed with. It was secret instead of just one transmit frequency communicating. She said, what if we change those frequencies constantly in sync with each other? Frequency hopping. You couldn't jam it because you'd only jam a split second of it in a single frequency. So frequency change, frequency hop, frequency hop, frequency hop. That concept, secure radio communications, was brilliant. Amina, how important is Hedy Lamarr's invention of frequency hopping? 
Um, it is very important as a concept that uh, you can be hopping uh, from here to there and therefore you cannot be caught. That was what she had in mind. In addition to that, uh, not being uh, discoverable, frequency hopping provides an opportunity to not be seen interfering with others. And now that we use more and more phones all together in small rooms at the same time, uh, you don't want, we want, don't want to interfere with each other. And therefore, in a way, frequency hopping or some derivatives of it in general called spread spectrum, are part of today's wireless standards. And this particular uh, hopping solution is very similar to what we use in Bluetooth, for example. So it is important uh, both uh, as the invention itself and as a general concept. And how does uh, Hedy's discoveries, how do they influence your area of study? Actually, interestingly, uh, very recently I was uh, told by uh, the National Science Foundation that they would uh, recommend uh, a proposal that I wrote for funding. It uh, enables covert uh, communications by using Internet of Things. So again, as in in Hattie's discovery, uh, little pieces of signals or messages would hop not from frequency to frequency, but from little thing to another little thing that has capability to transmit messages. So for example, if I wanted to go for dinner with you and not um, want anyone to know, I might say, um, I may plant a little message in Alex's earrings and say, Michael, and then another little message and say, Susan's lipstick and say, seven o'clock. And then once when you mingle around at this party, you would collect from these little objects that people have message from me. Can't wait for that message. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Susan, how do you think uh, Hedy Lamar's story resonates, especially now in the the Time's Up movement and beyond? You're you're central to the world of Hollywood, and I'm I'm curious how how it speaks to you. Oh, God, that's such a tough question because sex is the currency of show business. I mean, if you're going to be honest, you know, that's why it's so tricky. And I think it's really tricky for young women who are developing their identity and they know that what they're offering, even if it's not taken advantage of, is somehow sexual, is somehow sensual, is somehow... Uh, desirability. That's the way, that's how things are cast. And even now, when they use the internet, they look at how many likes you have, how desirable are you, and everybody knows that. And they don't want to say that, but you know, because it makes it seem as if somehow, in the old paradigm, that you deserve it. Therefore, if you're harassed, but it's not necessarily true, obviously. Um, but Hetty came about at a time she knew what she was selling. You know, and she did use it. And so that's what made her so vulnerable as she became older and and felt herself less able to sell herself. It's a different business. I mean, I don't know. I think somebody, I was talking to somebody about this, another woman about this, and she said, yeah, but that's in Silicon Valley too. That's in a lot of places. But it's really almost justified in show business. So um, I think Hetty, you know, definitely um, knew that this was the way things operated. I mean, when she 
<laughs> when she got on that ship, she took her dresses and she sold her persona to get a better contract. I'm not saying that she necessarily exchanged sexual favors, but she definitely didn't go on and just have an intellectual conversation by itself. You know, that's what she was, that was her strength. That was her power at that moment. And so just like Joan Crawford, and especially Joan Crawford, not Betty Davis necessarily, because she was never a sex symbol, but the same kind of thing happened to her where she doubted her relevance once she started to turn into a different version of herself as she started to age. And so I think that um, women are examining now, you know, their power and, again, you know, not having to choose one or the other. But in my business especially, it's, I think it's very confusing. And when, you become in, when you're a male that becomes entitled and becomes powerful and is in that position, I think that um, it's, it's a very easy slip, a horrible slip to, to bully or to harass someone. But the atmosphere in which this is going on is so permeated with, with that kind of exchange that I think it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting time for women to examine how they handle that you know, and, and what their responsibility is and how they can make it clear that they're not, you know, available in that way necessarily, but at the same time in this sexualized atmosphere. How Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, it's... it's <laughs> we could talk about that one subject. No, I don't want to go any further. I can see my <laughs> foot going right in my mouth, everything being taken out of context and showing up somewhere. But um, anyway. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, Alex, what do you hope that young women will get out of the film? You know, there's a lot I hope. I hope young women will get out of the film. I mean, I think I made the film mainly for young women. You know, I hope that they will understand that women have always been struggling with the issues that I think many of them are struggling with in the, you know, in the world of social media today which is, you know, how do you present yourself? How do you navigate a world where you may be given this enormous power at a very young age that you didn't earn, that, that it might just be about the way you were born, the way you were born looking. And then you don't know how to wield that power and you don't know what to do when that power ebbs away, also completely out of your control. And you also don't know how to deal with, you know, trying to gain respect, trying to navigate the world with your mind and how that interact, interacts with this other power that, that you have with your face. Um, that, I, I think Hetty is a case study in that whole problem and, and, and almost a parable. And she, I hope, gives you kind of grist for a great conversation at least about that, where you start to examine how that in, interacts in your own life. And maybe because you talk about it, you don't, you're not just subject to the whims of these, these different powerful forces in your life, but you navigate them with, with intent. The other day we were talking and you used a phrase, a sort of analogy to windows and mirrors. Mm. Could, you, could you speak to that? Yeah. Um, windows and mirrors actually came up when I was talking to my son's school, Ethical Culture, here on 63rd Street. Um, the teachers there were teaching me about it, but it... it, it it was a while ago, and it really changed my perspective, which was when you learn about somebody that looks like you, um, it's a mirror in some ways. And when you learn about somebody that, that maybe doesn't look like you, comes from a different 
background. It can be equally inspiring, but they call, about, they call it a window because you're looking outwards, but you're not, again, seeing yourself in that person necessarily. So my example is, for me growing up, there was no greater hero than Martin Luther King. But it wasn't necessarily a mirror. I didn't necessarily see myself in Martin Luther King and, and, and create a set of actions for my life based around exactly what he did. Although definitely to some extent that was true. But the power of a mirror, of seeing someone like you in a position that you're trying to reach, is that it does seem to affect a child's life. And that is a real movement right now in progressive schools to make sure that children see people like them in, in kind of heroic roles or whatever roles um, that, that, that make you change the direction of your life. And so for me, Hetty is a, is a mirror. Not that, you know, I think any of us know what it's like to be that beautiful or that powerful, but because she is somebody who's, you know, clearly female and working in the feminine space and yet so brilliant and so magnetic and so, uh, so much navigating her, her world through her mind and her face, that's a mirror and, and therefore gives me uh, you know, a new way to live my own life. And I hope it creates a mirror for a whole generation of younger women who are moved by people like Hetty. And Susan, what, why are you so passionate about making documentaries? Well, um, first of all, you don't know how they're gonna turn out. I like that. <laughs> Um, and I just think they're so good now, and people are more used to the idea of watching documentaries, especially since you can, you know, watch them in your home, uh, and uh, so you're willing to take a chance to enter into something that you don't know anything about. And I know I, I fell in love with documentaries because I work for free when I narrate them usually, <laughs> and so everyone comes to me to narrate them when they're all these little documentaries. I didn't know that. Not this one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I started to be called upon to do voiceover work on a lot of very inspiring, tiny documentaries. And I was learning so much about people and places, so many inspiring people and what was going on in countries that I ha couldn't go to or I didn't go to that I wouldn't have known anything about. And I think that that's just the, for, you know, a lazy person, that's the easiest way to really expand your funnel on the world is just to turn on a documentary. And, and, and also, really the human heart, the human soul, the perseverance, the generosity that we are not encouraged to identify with now because mainstream media is just full of bad news and fear-mongering and limited uh, information. Um, you, you, you see when they highlight a person that's, you know, one person at a time making such a difference in a community. And you see these stories of people that have persevered against just enormous odds. And you just say, wow, you know, look what we're capable of. Let's not go down the depressing road of what we're seeing and hearing constantly. Let's, let's opt for, for, for that kind of person. And so I think that we, we give people the, the opportunity to have discussions that are maybe a little more than the Kardashians or Stormy Daniels, you know, just a little bit more interesting than just the same thing over and over. And so you can go and have, watch a documentary with someone and then really have a great conversation. And I love that idea. So going to narrative, you know, fiction is also great, but I think 
there probably are more really great documentaries than there are features these days. Uh, features are made so often by committee, really, because people are giving money and they have a vote then. And so less and less do you get a vision of a director. You get a something that's trying to appeal to everyone, which means it's not very specific, right? And so occasionally on some of the other platforms, you'll get something wild like Handmaid's Tale or something that can, can be very brave. But for the most part, the industry is now headed, you know, making these great big superhero movies and a lot Tent of other poles. things. Yeah. yeah. And so how great it is to be able to, to find documentaries on a lot of different places and uh, and take a chance and, and watch it. So I think they're the future, and they're becoming better and better. You know, not just and more profitable. Are they? Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> no, I think I think um, it's a golden age for documentary now with different platforms. Whether it's um, mm. you know the uh, subscription video on demand or um, in theatrical, the the heady bombshell played in theaters around the country did quite well. So there's that hope. I don't think anyone in document, documentary filmmaking gets into it because they think it's uh, pro terribly profitable. But um, let's, let's ask Alex, if we can, what were the difficulties that you had trying to make this into the beautiful film that it became? Our biggest problem was trying to find Hetty's voice itself. Um, we knew at the beginning that we were going to make this film based on her voice, but all we had at the time was this autobiography that she'd written that we knew she hated. We knew she'd sued the ghostwriter, and over time I felt more and more like a fraud basing her doc on this book she hated. So it wasn't until six months into making the film that we kind of gathered in the offices at Reframed and decided we're going we're gonna to try and find another record of her voice. We think that she would have left it somewhere. And so we made a list of everybody on earth who could possibly have this voice of Hedy Lamarr. And we were so lucky because we went down this list of 72 people and we, when we hit the reporter Fleming Meeks, uh, who had talked to her in 1990, we called him and he said immediately, I have been waiting 25 years for you to call me because I have these tapes. And he had been shuffling them around from house to house, office to office, waiting for somebody to call and say, what was Hetty's true story? And he had talked to her over this course of four different phone conversations. She'd hung up on him sometimes. He'd sent her flowers, and she'd allowed him to call back. And I think he didn't know at the time why he recorded this long-ranging conversation, except that he was a little bit in love with her as a child. And so I think he felt joy at hearing about this world that she'd lived in and great respect for her in a way. And I think he also sensed that there was a story here that would eventually be important. And then, you know, we, we got these tapes and we put them in the, in the tape player and they jammed. The first time we put them in, sound actually literally fell off the tape itself because it was so old. And, you know, somebody said, never put a cassette tape into a cassette player when it's older than, you know, 1990 at that point, 30 years old take it to an audio expert. And when you take it to the audio expert, what they do is they put it in an oven and bake the sound back onto the tape. And that seals it there so it can't fall off. 
and then they were able to play the cassettes, but only one time through each, and they were digitized into the cloud at that point, and, and in that process, the tapes themselves were destroyed. So now we had this digital archive. It was terrible sound. We went through a huge process of, of restoring that sound to the best quality we could get it to. And then we had the fact that this was a rambling conversation that had gone on over days and weeks and didn't totally make sense. And it took us a long time to stitch back together what Hetty was trying to say. She'd lose her train of thought and things. So it took us about three months to realize, oh my God, we do have her story. With the good audio and the sound and everything put back together in a chronological order, suddenly there it was. Well, we could talk about Hetty all evening, but I think we need to close with one last big question I'd like you to each answer uh, in your own way. Is Hetty Lamar a genius? Mm. <laughs> You're on the hot spot. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not because just because of her science, because she kept a sense of humor after going through all that. Mm. I thought that was pretty genius. Mm. And... Uh, and I think she, you know, what is a genius? To think outside the box. And she definitely thought outside the box. And I think she tried to live an authentic life, which is pretty hard in, in, in uh, Hollywood. Um, so, I, yeah, I'll, I'd say I go for that box. I'll check that genius box. Yeah, I agree. Um, for me, also, genius is someone who thinks differently than other people, um, and it doesn't have to be more deep or more mathematical or technically stronger, but just different. And she definitely was an independent thinker. And you see that uh, no matter what she does, she has also this engineering mind. I have a problem and I want to find a solution. And if it's a dinner, I'll dress in a certain way. If it's uh, planes, I'll think about fish and, and uh, birds. Um, yeah. not to even mention frequency hopping. Yeah. And I think that in the beginning of the movie, I was thinking, of course, uh, people could not relate to her because she was so beautiful. But then towards the end of the movie, I was thinking, she was such an independent thinker and, and she really thought so differently than other people mm. that of course, then she couldn't relate to others. Yeah. Mm. I, well, how do I follow up with these two? Um, I do think she was a genius. I think she was a genius because of the way that she did solve problems. She would say on the tapes, I'm just looking for the simplest route between two points. And I think that's true. That's what she was doing. But her brain was able to kind of frequency hop. You could hear it in the tapes. She would leap from one thing to another. And, um, and I know in all of George Antile's correspondence, her co-inventor, he would write about her genius because he was watching that mind leap and it would leap into this new space because it was able to take two unrelated things and smash them together and come up with something new. And I think that is part of the definition of genius. Well, thank you. Alexandra? I want to see a raise of hands of how many people think she was a genius in the audience. Oh, that's a good, good amount. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank yeah. you all for joining us this evening for this special American Masters podcast. Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story, is available for streaming on 13 Passport and at pbs.org American Masters. Thanks again for coming. Have a great night.
maybe I came from a different planet, who knows? <laughs> but whatever it is, inventions are easy for me to do. We want to give a special thanks to Harvey Summerfield and Billy Schinker at the Whitby Hotel for helping with our live recording. The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner, with sound engineering by John Berman, and I'm your host, Michael Cantor. Listen to past episodes on our site at pbs.org slash americanmasters or on Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. And please give us your reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts. It's an easy way that you can help more listeners find our show. Stay tuned for more episodes and an all-new season of the American Masters podcast coming soon.